Is that the way that works? Okay. Tell you what, let's open up in prayer and uh, give this time over to the Lord. So, Lord, thank you so much for this time together and uh, for the opportunity to come before you uh, in our worship service, but also in our Sunday school class and just talk about what's come before so that we understand where we're at now. We pray that you be glorified by everything we say and do here this morning. Thank you so much for the youth group being here. And we pray that uh, we, just, we just lay this at your feet and do this for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, this is a church history class. Technically, the name of the class is Church History for People Who Didn't Think They Liked History. So this is... Uh, there you go. Just waiting for that pop-up. Uh, so we've been going through church history. We started with uh, the, the original church, the ancient church, uh, in the first several centuries. We're up in the middle of the Reformation, um, when, uh, after the Catholic Church had gotten very corrupt for an extended period of time, there have been a number of different attempts to get back to a more biblical form of Christianity over the years. A lot of different groups that kept going, well, have you actually read this thing? Shouldn't we get back to doing this more the way the Bible is actually saying it? There was something crucially different about Martin Luther when he went through and did this. Not, not just about him, but about the situation. You adults, we've already talked about this, but what would you think is different about uh, the turn of going into the 1500s that made Martin Luther's attempt to say, hey, shouldn't we get back to reading the Bible? Shouldn't we get back to thinking about uh, solid Christian doctrine? What was different about that time period than everything that had come before? What would you think? Technological marvel that changed things. Ooh, Megan made a ooh face. The printing press. It's one thing in the 13th century to say, hey, I think we should probably do things this way. But you can only say that to like 20 people, right? And you get this movement that moves a little bit. You get this group that kind of expands a little bit and then gets stomped on and stomped on. But when you say it in the 1500s and you can print this and thousands of people hear it, and it doesn't just go away when somebody says, nah, uh that changes things. So yes. Once we get into this Reformation time period, you've got, a, you've got a new kind of technology that's taking things all over the place. Now, we've talked about Martin Luther, who kind of started this modern version of a, of, uh, a Reformation. We've talked about uh, all sorts of different reformers. Right now, we're in the middle of talking about a Catholic counter-Reformation. Because while the, 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 these Protestant groups were growing and doing different things, the Catholic Church is still doing stuff. So, really brief synopsis of what we talked about last week. Um, the current Pope, Pope Paul III, back in 1540, approved a group called the Society of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jesuits. And these guys uh, brought uh, not only a, a very strong sense of, of military structure, because uh, their, their leader, Ignatius, had been a, a knight, but he also brought this important sense of, of learning and studying. Up until this point, priests were encouraged not to read the Bible, because they were told that that would kind of mess them up. Because who are they to interpret scripture? Nobody should be interpreting scripture except like the Pope and a couple of cardinals. So the Jesuits came and said, you know, you really ought to study. You ought to read the Bible. You ought to be reading and, and understanding why you're teaching what you're teaching. It becomes extremely important as time goes on. Um, two years later, the Pope institutionalized the Inquisition. They had like a Spanish Inquisition, a Portuguese Inquisition for, for a couple of decades. They had Inquisitions for a long time. And the whole point of an inquisition was to search out heresies and make them stop being heretical. 
And so you know, this, this centralization of the Inquisition, because the Pope said, I want to make sure that we're doing this right. We want to reform what we're doing. We want to make sure that when we're torturing people to make sure that they renounce their heresy, it's actually heresy, and we know why it's heresy. And we're not just being overly cruel. Let's, let's go back and figure out why we're doing what we're doing. Because there were things going on, uh, particularly because of the printing press, there was a lot of wacky ideas, at least presumably wacky ideas, that were getting all over the place. For instance, a guy named Copernicus in 14, or 1543 wrote that gasp, the earth went around the sun, not the sun going around the earth, which is like crazy talk, right? It's just crazy to think the earth goes around the sun, isn't it? Yes? No? It looks like deer cut in the headlights. Yeah, there was a time when there was a time when the church taught very clearly, oh no, 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 the, the earth is the center of the universe, everything revolves around the earth. And Copernicus said, actually the math doesn't line up with that. Um, it was also the same year that the Church of England officially banned William Tyndale's English translation of the Bible. Because they said originally the Catholic Church said you can't print the Bible in anything other than Latin, which is obviously God's language. Why? Because that's what they used. That's it's what they spoke in Rome originally. So yeah, it's like, well, God obviously speaks Latin. Uh, so anytime that you would try to print a Bible in German or in English or something, they, they would get upset with that. But for those of you that were in the class before, what was it in particular that Henry VIII and his Church of England had a problem with Tyndale's uh, translation? Was it just that it was in English? Tyndale went back to the uh, Took out specifically, let's call them loaded terms. That, that you, you go, either they're a totally legit word, um, but they, they, they've been invested with some seriously Catholic meanings, or that was not a particularly good translation in the first place. So he went back and he's like, okay, this word just means overseer. This word just means elder. Let's let's just use that in English. Um, and and the Church of England, which at that time was trying to be basically just an English version of Catholic of, of Catholicism. It's like, I'm very uncomfortable that you're changing this stuff around. And so instead, they used Henry's English Great Bible, which even then the Catholic Church would have said, no, 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 it's in English. But at least it was a very Catholic-y kind of English. And, and that they felt comfortable with. This is also the same year that Martin Luther published On the Jews and Their Lies. He said, you know, Jews are the devil's people. We need to, we are at fault for not killing all the Jews kind of messed up as, as he got older. Had a lot of things going for him when he was younger. As he got older, he got very anti-Semitic. All right. This is what we, we talked a lot about last week. So now you've, you've got up to steam. We're in 1545, and we got millions of Aztecs dying of disease. 90% of the Aztecs died. But let's talk about this. Back in 1527, talked about this a couple weeks ago, 20 years before, the Incan ruler, Juan uh, Capac, died from smallpox that he got from Europeans that had come over. And that is why the empire had weakened enough that Pizarro could take over the, the Inca Empire. Right? For any of you who have studied history. So we know that things like smallpox were invading the New World. We know that they were taking people out. Not cool. Right? It also didn't help that in uh, Central and South America at that time, they had a prolonged drought followed by years of flooding. Does that sound familiar to any of you that have been taking the history class up, up to this point? 
Years of prolonged drought followed by years of flooding bringing disease. Yeah, that's exactly what happened in Asia and in Europe in the 1330s that launched the Black Death, this, this horrible plague. Uh, it's been generally accepted fact, and you probably studied this in your history class, that the Europeans came to America as conquerors, and they brought diseases like smallpox and typhus, and the natives had no defense against this stuff, right? So the natives were getting sick all over the place. Pardon me. That's what, you, that's what everybody learns. That's what happened to the Incan rulers. Yeah, absolutely. Destroys 90% of the native population, 20 million people, most of whom in 1545. In one year, millions of Aztecs in particular die, making them obviously quite a bit easier for the Europeans to conquer. It came a lot easier to make Mexico Spanish if it's depleted of Mexicans, right? Right. Everybody knows this. Everybody in Mexico has been taught this. Everybody in the United States has been taught this. The problem is it's not entirely true. Um, and, and that's problematic on some, on, on some levels. It's kind of true. I mean, the Europeans did bring infectious diseases. We know that. We know that, that Kapok died from smallpox. Yes, got that. But we also need to remember that the Native Americans were sharing diseases with the Europeans, too. It is a two-way street. Um, so tuberculosis, syphilis, and everything. Yeah, the, the Europeans took those back to Europe with them. This became the, the nasty bit of something that's called the Columbian Exchange. The Columbian Exchange is, you know, we, we from the New World, you, you get chocolate and pineapples and pumpkins, and from the Old World, you get coffee and peaches and pigs and diseases. Oh, and diseases. It's diseases back and forth that they're sharing, um, which is really not nice, but it's just, it's just the way things work. Right? That makes a certain amount of sense. That's part of why this is only sort of true. The other reason is that it's not what destroyed the Native American empires. It's not smallpox from the Europeans. Um, there's a Harvard-trained Mexican epidemiologist named Rodolfo Acuna Soto. Um, they loved him because he is awesome. He's from Mexico City. He's like a world-class epidemiologist. They're like, oh, we're so proud of him. Go, Rodolfo. We love you. And he realized it wasn't smallpox that killed him in the, in the mid-1500s. It's like, you know, when I look at this as an epidemiologist, I don't think it was a European disease. It was actually this hemorrhagic fever that the natives called cocolitsi that had been around centuries before the Spanish ever arrived. When I actually look at the descriptions of the symptoms of these diseases, it doesn't sound like smallpox at all. And it sounds exactly the way they described all these other diseases that have been around that had specifically followed years of uh, flooding that had followed years of drought. So he's like, you know, when I look at this, I, I know that in Mexico you have an entire culture based on the Spanish are evil. I mean, everything that's gone wrong is because the Spanish came over and did nasty things to us. He's like, but as an epidemiologist, everything I've been trained for, it doesn't look like that. I mean, if I were going out in the field and trying to figure out what this disease is so we knew how to treat it, I would say, it's this thing. It's this Aztec disease that existed centuries before the, the, the Spanish had come. We need to treat it as such. It's just that the, the natives got it as opposed to the Spanish, first off, because they're the ones that worked in the field and they came in contact with the disease vectors, the rats, the, the, the fleas, etc. And because the Spanish really didn't interact with the Mexicans very much. Um, especially at this point in history, they're just kind of like, you know, we just sit here and count the gold and 
you work the fields. We, we have no interconnection with you at all. So he's like, that's 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 why the, that's why the natives died. It's not that because the Europeans had some sort of resistance because it was their disease. It's just they never came in contact with. It. It's kind of a huge thing, actually. Um, so I, I want to get credit. I'm like, Spanish were nasty people at that point. Treasure stealing imperialist slave slave traders. Yes, I'll give you that. But you can't blame them for the genocide of 90% of the Mexican population. Not if, if Acuna Soto is correct. And everything I read, it seems to suggest he's correct. He's just not very popular in Mexico at this particular time. Uh, seriously, he was like the total poster child. Oh, look at who we've... No, no, we hate this guy. We have to rewrite all the history books. Everything that we have based on this... Um, victimized mindset of saying the reason that the Aztec Empire fell was because those nasty Europeans brought their diseases. And you go, um, no, actually. So anyway, wacky fun with history. I'd be curious to see, because uh, I, I haven't seen a, yes, Anna. Well, it, it, it took out large chunks of the percentages of their population in times before. I mean, it took out like 50, 60% of their population 100 years before. It's just not 90%. And I don't know why, in particular, this was this was more virulent. I don't know. Maybe it's because the Spanish had more people working in the fields or things like that. I, I don't know. But um, reading the actual description of the diseases and, and, and the description of the, uh, of the symptoms, I, I'm with him. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't sound like smallpox. So... Anyway, oh, yeah, you, yeah. You know, you said tuberculosis and syphilis went that way. Was that not in Europe before? Um, not those particular, not the most virulent strains. Really? Uh, That's the first time. The nastiest versions of, of tuberculosis and syphilis came from here. Just like um, there wasn't smallpox, but there were versions of pox here in the New World before the Europeans came, but not smallpox. So, I mean. Most diseases, there's versions of them all sorts of different places, but just not not quite those nastier versions of them. It's possible. Well, it would, it just, at this stage of the game, there's no rule, there's no way to know that part. Um, so, so I don't want to give these guys a pass. I don't want to say, oh, they're nice. No, they're scum. It just... You don't, don't have to be guilty of this. You know, so. Oh, well. All right, anyway. Same year that that's going on, the Council of Trent starts this counter-reformation, a church council that, that came along. Um, Paul III, our pope at the time, uh, goes, goes to Trento in northern Italy. That's the Council of Trent. Um, and it was intended to, to say, with all these attacks on Catholicism, with all these Protestant movements growing up, we need to reaffirm classic Catholicism. We need to make sure that we know why we believe what we believe and that it's cool. Alright? So everybody, yes, we're going to address all the criticisms. We're going to go back to saying why we do what we do. Let's deal with this. Let's start this counter-reform. Um, now, it was very sparsely attended for a council like this, in part because you got the French king who's openly supporting the Turks. If you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Francis is, is openly supporting the Turks because he doesn't like the Holy Roman Emperor, who's the Spanish, for you who are just coming in, 
gotta you gotta roll with this. The Holy Roman Emperor, who sits in Germany, is a Spanish king named Carlos, who doesn't get along with Rome. Has nothing to do with Rome. The Holy Roman Empire, Catholic Holy Roman Empire, has nothing to do with Rome at this stage. So you got the French king openly supporting the Muslim Turks, and you've got the Holy Roman Emperor who, 20 years before, had his troops rape and pillage their way through Rome. So strangely, there weren't a lot of French and people from the Holy Roman Empire going to the Council of Trent. Go figure. Because nobody liked them at this particular stage who were actually doing the Council of Trent. So you really do have very much a French Catholicism, a German Catholicism, and an Italian Catholicism that all theoretically believe the same things, but never connect with one another. And I'll theoretically point to Rome and say, yeah, they're in charge, we just hate them and never talk with them. That's it's just the way things are at the moment. So, they say, okay, first thing we're going to do, we're going to affirm tradition and we're going to attack Protestantism. So, oh, and I should say, today, up until this point, I've essentially been talking about reformers and reform theology. Um, which is not just Calvinism. They can't take the whole word. You know, it's, everybody's trying to reform. I'm going to start talking about Protestants because the Catholic Church is trying to reform itself, too. So if I'm going to talk about something contrary to Catholicism, I'm going to try to use the term Protestants. The Catholics have been using the term Protestants since about 1527 when there were a bunch of imperial free cities, a bunch of cities within the empire who were told that they could do kind of what they wanted to do. Um, and the church had created um, some, a, a, an agreement at the, at the Diet of Speyer where they had said, all right, you get to do certain things that you want to do. And then immediately turned around and went, no, you don't. And so the, 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 the imperial free cities protested that and said, well, that's not right. You can't do that. You can't say, all right, let's, let's all get along. We'll let you do your craziness. Everybody fine? Everybody fine? Okay, okay. now you don't get to do your craziness anymore. He's like, now wait a minute, you don't get to do that. And so they called them Protestants, because you're protesting the fact that the church went back on its, on its agreement. And so that became the term for everybody who didn't see themselves as, as Catholic at this time. So anyway, started attacking Protestants. The bishops uh, denounced all reform movements. They said any kind of reform of the church is wrong, uh, especially the Lutherans. That's terribly wrong. Any innovation in Christian worship is inherently sinful because it assumes that we must have been doing it wrong. So if you do any kind of innovation, it's automatically wrong. Now, what do you think about that? Right, wrong, good, bad, why? Give me some, give me some arguments maybe as to why they've got a good point. Why might... Is, is there any problem with innovation? With the spirit of innovation? Do we run into this at all today? When you, have a, uh, when you have a congregation that takes on a movement, uh, you might end up people running down the aisle uh, or speaking over each other or you just get some really crazy wacky ideas that you start losing Okay, if, if, Especially if what you're looking for is the novel, the new, I want something new. If that's the point of your worship, it ceases to be about God in the first place. Okay. Well, plus it's easy to unite because it's anything new, you can wrap it up so they can get immediate uh, mm -hmm. help and there's no confusion, everything 
Yep. So it's a way to unify yourself. It's a it's a cheap and easy way to unify yourself because you that's the way most cults begin of saying, Oh, we've got a new way of looking at this that nobody's ever looked at before. Randy, what were you well, that's what I was gonna say. Uh, <coughs> it would be good to say that uh, when the new thing is bad. When it's a cult, when it's Jim Jones, when it's whatever. Uh, but it's bad if they're actually <coughs> looking at the Bible and saying, you know, we may be doing this wrong, let's, let's discuss this. That's an interesting irony. I mean, uh, like, like, like we were saying over here, even if something innovative is a good thing, if the whole point is the innovation, hey, look, we do this new, we do this new, even a good thing can be not healthy. But the irony is, what if the innovation is, can we go back to the way we used to do this? Can, can we go back to the way we did this in the first century? Um, so so what, are, what are some good things about innovation or bad things about saying all innovation is, bad, is, is wrong? Yeah. We want to say this is what the Bible says, but yes, if we twist that, or if we say this is what tradition has said, and we make tradition the focus of the worship, just like the danger of saying innovation is the focus of the worship, as long as it's new, that's the cool thing, that's inherently bad, because it's not about God anymore. If we say tradition is the point of the worship, you go, inherently bad, because it's not about God anymore, right? Is innovation inherently bad? No. Is tradition inherently bad? No. If you make it about those things. It's only worship if it's only worship if we learn new songs. It's only worship if we do something really cool and new. It's only worship if we're cutting edge. An amazing number of churches today will talk about we're a cutting edge church. Unhealthy, because it's about that instead of about God. It's only worship if we do this traditional thing. It's only worship if we do this traditional thing. It's only worship if we do it this traditional way. Inherently bad for the exact same reason. Just pointing in a different direction. Not because the innovation is inherently bad, or the tradition is inherently bad, but if you make it about that. Okay, what else? What else is dangerous about this? All innovation is wrong. Anything else? Yeah? It, it, you know, then you can't step up with the times. Is that as the youth, and, and what's going on in science, and uh, so it helps oh. to uh, that's a line. That's a really good point, is I mean, we've already seen this whole, but tradition says... The earth is the center, and the sun goes around the earth. Therefore, if you say, you know, the math seems to suggest that that's wrong, that the earth actually moves around the sun, if we say, well, but that's an innovation, all innovation is wrong, therefore science must be wrong, therefore we have to go to science, that's not a good thing. And, and you're going to do exactly what the world ended up doing, is to look at the church and start going, as we start getting into the next period after this Reformation, this church, or the, the world starts looking at the church going, I don't think you get it. I don't think you understand the way the world really works. And now you're starting to lose relevance. Not because your message is irrelevant, but because you can't look at the world around you and actually see it. Yes, Anne? I'm not able to say, like, it's all about people get more things about the world. It's I think it's inherently dangerous to try to change what we are, who we are, uh, the, the, the content of our message, because uh, I, I, I think the Bible doesn't change. I think it's inherently dangerous to try to change uh, who we are, what we do, 
to try to match either the way we did it 500 years ago or the way we see that people are doing it today so that we touch them, so that we meet them, so that we are what they look like, so that we feel like that's what we're doing. You know, to be aware of and built on tradition, to be aware of and conscious of your, your culture so that you can actually reach out to them, good stuff. To say, but I, but I want to be them, or I want to be these guys, inherently dangerous. And so the Catholic Church is saying, oh, all innovation is wrong can't change anything, which is bizarre because they change the stuff all the time. Um, they also affirmed the veneration, the worship of uh, holy relics, which are bits and pieces of dead bodies of holy people. So they, they reaffirmed the veneration of holy relics and saints, especially at, at this council, uh, the importance of venerating Mary above all others. You need to be able to pray to Mary. Mary is the co-redemptrix with Christ. She helped redeem the entire universe, yada, yada. Mary was obviously sinless, because that was one of the things that the, Catholic, that the, the Protestants were saying, no. And so at the Council of Trent, they're like, no, we need to make sure we reaffirm. Yes, resounding yes. Um, and also the doctrine of salvation by faith and the works that come from faith. You have to say that together as one phrase. Salvation by faith and the works that come from faith. Because the Protestants were talking about salvation by faith alone. It's only by faith that you're saved. And the Catholics are like, no, no, no. You're saved by faith and the works that come from faith. You've got to make sure that you you follow all the different sacraments. You've got to make sure that you continue to go to Mass, continue to take communion in order to remain saved. You have to do the works that come from being a faithful Christian, or else you cannot remain saved. Again, trying to reaffirm the differences between them and, and Protestants. As a result, they also were reaffirming the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is a big old word, but it basically just means that the Catholics would believe at communion that uh, the, the bread and the, and the cup that we drink turns into, literally turns into the flesh and blood of Jesus uh, when it's blessed by the, the, by the priest. And increasingly, Protestants were going, I, I don't see that. I mean, some were saying, well, maybe it's not literally the flesh and blood, maybe it's only spiritually the flesh and blood. Others were saying, yeah, I think we're doing this primarily as a remembrance, that it's, we're just remembering what Christ did for us. It's a way of remembering, just like Passover is a way of remembering. Um, but at Trent, they reaffirmed that the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ are fully present in the host. The host is a Catholic word for uh, the, the bread. Anybody know why? Anybody know what the word host is referring to? Hostia. It's a Latin word. It means sacrificial victim. And so, when in Catholicism you take uh, when in Catholicism you take the host, you are literally re-sacrificing Christ. Yeah. Yes. Good job. So, um, I love that. Okay, here. But so, yes, you get, so when, you, when they talk about the host, you are literally, the priest is holding up, in fact, I don't know if you can see here, but in this one, you've got a, a crucifix, so you've got Jesus on, imprinted on the piece of bread. But you are the, the priest is re-sacrificing Christ on an altar, um, which is why if you go to some churches, they'll they'll refer to like that table that we have, the communion table up front. They'll refer to it as the altar, because there's a priest making a sacrifice on an altar, just like just like any Greek priest, just like any pagan priest would would do a sacrifice on the altar of the host, the sacrificial victim. 
I have re-sacrificed Christ and reapplied his body to you. But not his blood, because only the priest could drink the cup. Lay people can't drink the cup. We, we've talked about that already in, in, in this class. Why couldn't the lay people drink from the cup? Because that's the blood of Christ. Lay people aren't holy. Only the priest is holy. Only the priest is holy. Only the priest gets to drink the cup. Lay people, you take the bread, I will sacrifice Jesus for you, and you can take his, his sacrificed body on yourself. Not as holy. There's levels of holy. Because this, this is Jesus sacrificed to, um, to bring you into his fold. The cup washes you clean from sin. Which you can't be washed clean from sin. Because you're not holy. You have to go to confessional, confess your sins, then the priest will absolve you of those sins, and you start all over again. It's like a little mini Yom Kippur. What's interesting is that throughout the Bible, it actually talks about the blood that buys adoption for you and washes you clean and brings you into adoption. So again, it's one of these things where you can see why Martin Luther, Jean Calvin, Menno Simons, uh, Peter Waldo, these guys would read the Bible and go, how did we get this so backwards? What are we doing here? And, and then keep changing this once they read the Bible. Anyway, so this is some of the stuff that Trent is working on. They also officially designated Jerome's Latin Vulgate Bible that was written 1,200 years before to be the one true Bible of the church. They've been using it for 1,200 years, but they haven't officially said this is the only Bible. So now they're saying only Bible. There are two big things that come from this. Number one, the true word of God is Latin. <laughs> God speaks Latin. God created things in Latin. The original Bible is in Latin. You want to go, well, Jerome translated that from the Greek and the Hebrew. Shut up. It's Latin. God's... And they will seriously, they'll talk about, you know, in the divine Latin, which is part of why the Pope still, when he writes encyclicals and things, will write them in Latin, because it's the divine language. It's God's language. Secondly, it means that the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books, the secondary books that Jerome included in his appendix are officially at the same level of canonicity as the official Old Testament books. Jerome included them in the appendix going, okay, these are just interesting books from the same basic time period. I, I wouldn't put them in the Bible, but I'm, I'm attaching them to my Bible. And I genuinely believe that for centuries, Jerome has been going, why did I do that? Um, because they're like, oh, it's in Jerome's Bible, therefore it's in the Bible. Now, they will sometimes refer to them as uh, deuterocanonical books or secondarily canonical. It's like the next step down from canonical. Or some will just say, no, it's just flat-out canonical. It's the same, same level of, of, uh, of, of goodness. There's some good books in the Apocrypha. There's some absolutely ridiculous books in the Apocrypha. We don't think any of them actually belong in the Bible itself. But, Council of Trent says yes. Yes? Did the, um, the Eastern Church ever use the Vulgate also? Or are they using it Greek? They're using Greek. So I don't know if they ever use it. Probably for the same reason that Jerome did, is saying these are biblical. I mean, one of the books of the of the Apocrypha is like the second part of Daniel that somehow got left off. You just go, written in completely different. I mean, in, even in the original Hebrew, you go completely different vocab, completely different sentence structure about stuff that's absolutely fantastical. This is clearly not a, an addition to Daniel, and yet it's presenting itself as if it were a biblical book. Um, so it's. I, I understand why Jerome included some of these, but I understand why he included them in a special appendix. Alex? Uh, is the Apocrypha 
No. <laughs> no, without going into details, uh, we get apostle and epistle both from the sense of being sent out. Um, but the apocrypha, it, it literally means uh, like hidden things uh, that, are being, that are being shown. So, anyway. Um, they also reaffirm the use of indulgences. What's an indulgence? Ish. Okay, yeah. What it is is if you give enough money in advance, if you give penitently money to the church, you will get forgiven for sins before you commit them. So you say, I'm going to go on crusade, and the church says we need to raise some money from for crusades, so um, we're going to sell indulgences. And you go, great. I will give the church $10,000 toward their crusade. And the church says, great, now we can actually have enough money to go on crusade. If you gave us $10,000, you can rape two women and burn a village and steal some holy artifact somewhere. You know, okay, I, I'm not really a rapist. Can I, can I burn like an extra village or steal some additional artifacts? Okay, no, and seriously, people would do that. They, you know, the, the priest would say, you get to do these things, and people would go, wait, 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 wait. Instead of this, can I do this? Okay, yeah, it's like a little bargaining thing. They said, yes, technically we can still do indulgences to, to fund the ministries of the church, and it saves souls from purgatory, because otherwise you, you're going to have to go to this place of purgation where you purge yourself of sin before you can go into heaven. And you could be there for a million years, but if you pay us $10,000, it's only half a million years that you have to be in purgatory. So if you had enough indulgence, can you make yourself holy enough to drink the wine? <laughs> That's an awesome question! I want to know if you could possibly give yourself enough indulgences that you just go, can I just skip purgatory altogether, or can I just drink the wine? I just wanted, did they write that down, that they had it, that they could carry it with them? Or was that I don't just know. Like because a, they're locals? It's like the yellow ticket from Lehman. Yeah, um, I just wondered. I don't know. I don't... Because you want to be sure that you had that, and if you're... You're a priest, then would you? <laughs> I know that there are records of. <laughs> just think that's an awesome question. I know that there are records of the indulgences and the specific things, but so I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, and then you just just just, okay. just telegraph back home. They'll tell you. I get to do this. It's okay. God said it was okay. I'm sure it was in the form of a checklist. First one, village check. That's like wait. That's what you said. You go wait, wait, wait. I can't do this, guys. Sorry, sorry. You burned this village yourself. I, I burned my three villages. Well, what yeah. What happens when, like, you know, you only get to kill ten people, but I'm in a battle? Oh no, 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 no. That's that has nothing to do with it. Killing, killing people in battle. You don't need an indulgence for that. You're already doing that for Jesus. We're talking about all the sins that you might do as part of your crusade. The the burning a village because you're attacking the village. No, that's fine. That's you don't need an indulgence for that. Burning a Christian village because you want their stuff on the way to crusade, that's what you need the indulgence for. An amazing number of Christians killed a lot of Christians walking to crusade. Because, I mean, like, I walk, I'm walking from France to Israel. I've got an awesome chance to kill a lot of people in Germany or Hungary on my way down there. And so we're going to do a lot of raping and pillaging of Christian cities on the way down to the Holy Land. And I, I'm just going to get myself in trouble, so what do I do? Worst description of this, but that's what that's one of the things. If you remember, that was one of the things that Martin Luther said. Okay, enough. You know, when the, when the guy came to actually sell indulgences there in Wittenberg, you know, that's Martin Luther's like, I'm done with this. I like, just this just too much. A lot of his 95 theses were about indulgences. 
They also reaffirmed that the church alone, that hierarchy of bishops and cardinals and popes, only the church can be the sole interpreter of scripture. Nobody else. Priests can't interpret scripture. Lay people can't interpret scripture. Only the pope and the cardinals and the bishops. Only they can interpret scripture. It's inherently dangerous for anybody else to be reading it. The flip side of this is scripture, logically, therefore, cannot be the interpreter of the church. If the church is the interpreter of scripture, how can scripture be the interpreter of the church? So anybody that says, but the Bible says we're doing this wrong, you can look at them and go, well, A, who are you to say what the Bible says? And B, who cares what the Bible says? We interpret scripture, not the other way around. Okay? Um, now, I've said all this kind of negatively, but I should say, at the same time, Paul's like, I want to make sure that at every step of this process, we really do try to figure out how to have the highest degree of integrity doing this. Otherwise, we're just doing the same. Remember Erasmus, who's just said there's an outward formalism that's just pointless. You need to have an actual holy sense. You want to actually honor God. And so Pope Paul III said, yeah, we want to actually honor God in this. So we want to make sure that we're doing this with integrity. Yes, we can do indulgences, but you shouldn't, we sh you shouldn't use indulgences to avoid genuine contrition. There were popes in the past that said, contrition is mission. Who cares? I don't care about contrition. All I care about is the indulgence. All I care about is that you jump through the right hoops. Paul says, no, no, no. You really should feel bad about sinning. And if, if the indulgence is going to say, now I can do stuff without feeling bad about it, that's bad. You would need to get forgiven for that. See how it works? Um, and it shouldn't just be something because our clergy are greedy. You shouldn't just say, fine, I'll give you an indulgence if you give me some money. No, no, you really should do this because you genuinely think this supports the church and forgives these people of their sins. So, so the indulgence should be done with the right heart. Um, the church hierarchy is supposed to be the true interpreter of scripture. Then you really, really need to read the Bible. I'm going to encourage the Pope and his bishops and his cardinals to actually read this silly thing. And read Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas and all those other people. If you're going to be the ones who say, we understand how this stuff works and we're the only ones who do, read it. For centuries we've had popes that never even cracked open a Bible. Don't you think we should probably read this thing? And you should actually know what you're talking about and everybody should say thank you to the Jesuits for this one. Because this is what the Jesuits were coming up saying, wait, 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 if we're going to be the only ones who can interpret Anselm, the only ones who can interpret Augustine, the only ones who can interpret Scripture, we need to have read these things. So I want to teach people, I want to teach priests, I want to teach bishops, I want to teach cardinals how to do this. Now, actually at the same time that the Jesuits are in the process of not only ushering in this, this focus on on learning, but the focus on mysticism that was sweeping the church. What's mysticism? Pardon me? Okay. Mysticism, mystics, comes from the same root word as mystery. It is. Uh, it's it, it, the mysteries are, pardon me, hidden things that people don't know about, and so uh, to, a mystic is somebody who knows stuff that most people don't know, and so mysticism is focusing on stuff that that the average Joe on the street doesn't already know. Now we 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 have a lot of connotations to that nowadays, but that's essentially what mysticism the word means. I was going to say usually has a lot of emphasis on I don't know vision. 
there's what you can glean about reality underneath what most people can see. So, uh, there's mystics, there's a Carmelite nun named Teresa of Avila, and her disciple, a Carmelite monk named John of the Cross, or Juan de la Cruz, if you want to say it correctly, but, uh, and then there's a Jesuit priest named Francisco de Borja, what do you, if you see, what? He is, he's a Borgia, he's just a good Borgia. It's like one of the few actually white hat good Borgias. But these guys emphasize this mysticism about abandoning your intellect, your sense of self. You need to get outside of understanding yourself as a, as a person, and you need to empty yourself completely to everything except God's will. You just need to be an empty vessel of God moving through you. Um, and so the whole point was to be in this peaceful sense of the all-encompassing presence of God. What are you making faces? Is this Teresa from, like, the ecstasy of St. Teresa? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a great story. Isn't it a great story? Yeah. Um, you can Ooh. talk about some of it. <laughs> I just got it. There you go. Is that Teresa of Avila? <laughs> um, all that you're supposed to be left with is imagination and creativity. Your intellect, your logic, your reason, all that goes by the wayside. How do you feel about this? How do you imagine things when? So, you should imagine yourself being in the nativity. Feel the roughness of the cradle. Understand what that's like. Um, you should imagine yourself drifting through infinity of, of space with the person of God as your guide. Um, some of the mystic things get a little almost raunchy, actually, uh, with, with, with stuff. Or not even almost raunchy. I'll just say raunchy. Um, but it's okay because you can't judge that as raunchy because you're, you've left judgment by the wayside. It's just supposed to say, Open yourself up to God, and anything God fills your mind with, go with it. So, uh, yeah, the, the resulting ecstasy is, is is very similar to the same sort of euphoria that like a, a, a shaman would feel in Native American rituals uh, who's taken a lot of drugs, or uh, in, in African rituals. The idea of saying, how do I get past a sense of being a fleshly creature and have this sense of being transcendent, the sense of being one with the infinite? Kind of a huge movement at this particular time. Now, I will confess, I find this repugnant, personally. I'm not saying it's a horrible thing. I'm just saying, personally, the idea of shutting off your brain, I, I find it very distasteful. In fact, I think it's kind of unbiblical. Having said that, that's just my personal opinion, and there's still a lot of really good stuff that came out of this mysticism. Even though I think it's inherently dangerous to shut off your reason that God gave you and open yourself up to anything spiritual. I've seen too many people do that and open themselves up to really, really, really dangerous spiritual things. But the idea is, is for the first time you get Catholics within Catholicism emphasizing how much bigger God is and how sovereign he should be in our lives. Not just he's there to, he's there, be, and you have to follow him because he's a king, or he's there to give you stuff that you want, but to sit there and say, he should be in charge of me. He should be spiritually in charge of me. He should be directing my steps. Um, they move past outward formalism and say, how do I have personal time with God? How do I spend genuine quality time between me and God? That's a new thing, other than outside of monasteries and nunneries, this is kind of a new thing. They also argue for lives that are personally touched by and changed by God. 
You should be, you don't have to just be a monk or a priest, but you can be a, an everyday person and still live in ways that God has touched and God manipulates, God moves forward. That's, that's important. Even if I sit there and I go, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the way you do this, the heart with which they're doing it, I could not possibly be more supportive of. You can't read your Actually, within this sort of mysticism, not so much. But there was also a French form of, of this mysticism that was more formalized, and they used Bible as part of what they worked through. Um, you had the theologians such as uh, Pierre de... Uh, forgive me, I don't speak French well at all. Uh, Francois de Sales. Um, he had a more structured form, and, and they, it's the basis of what we now refer to as spiritual direction or spiritual formation, where they, they're like, okay, instead of just studying, or instead of just praying, how do we... How do we do this in a ritualized way that incorporates the mysticism from Spain, incorporates the, the, the scriptures, etc.? So, they would say things like, um, we want to be introspective about our time with God, and we're going to make use of structured times. Uh, you, you pray and you do this at, at specific times of day, or specific rituals. Uh, Ignatius had spiritual exercises that he suggested people jump through and, 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 and stretch themselves through. So, you could spend time quietly meditating uh, in contemplation on the nature of sin, then spend time contemplating the love of God, then spend time contemplating Christ's work of atonement to apply God's love to our sin, like that. You work your way through it in a systematic sort of way. So, it's still, you're still abandoning your intellect, you're abandoning your, your reason, but you're not abandoning it to a free-form imagination. You're abandoning it to imagination but with an outward structure so like Donna if you were going to do this you would make sure that Christy is there to lead you as you go so that you don't go spinning off into left field you don't think you contemplate and at this point that contemplation isn't really a let me chew on that let me think about that it's, it's more about let let that wash over me let that just engage my imagination but so that you don't go too far Christy's going to make sure that you move from this to the next point to the next point so you, there's an outward structure to it. Yeah. Are they specifically describing it as imagination? Is, can't there be a place for just being receptive to the Holy Spirit without just thinking things yourself? Okay, you, you used a very important judicious use of the word just twice in that sentence. Not that I'm disagreeing with you, but it's like just imagination versus just thinking through I'm not sure that either of those is necessarily the holistic thing that we're being called to do. And th that wasn't necessarily exactly what I was trying to say either. Okay. Um, are, are there like two different Greek words that are translated mind? There's the noose, which is the receptive mind, and then there's the other one that's reasoning mind. And sometimes the word noose is translated as mind or heart in scripture, and that's what's supposed to be open to, to God giving us wisdom, mm -hmm. that it's not, it's not coming from us. Right. I agree. What I would say is, what these guys, what these guys are saying is, is, only receive, do not evaluate. And I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. If all we do is evaluate without receiving outside of ourselves, yeah, I don't see that in Scripture. If what we do is receive from the Lord and Bereanly bounce it off of Scripture, 
engage our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think that's that's where healthy worship comes from. Are there times to let your imagination soar? Yes. Should you do so where you say, I am abandoning all intellect as any kind of safeguard to do any of this? I'm abandoning everything I know about God and just say, I'm going to just start imagining and that will become my truth. I'm like, inherently dangerous. Conversely, if all you do is say, I will be grounded only in what I already know, inherently dangerous. Yeah. Another really positive thing about this term oh, yeah. I've done some oh, yeah. is the idea of retreats and uh, oh, yes. 40 days. But part of it is also listening to God and prayer. And I think that's one of the key things that I appreciate about that is listening to God. So you're not just talking, exactly. but you're really hearing, and you're using scripture, lecto divinia. And uh, so if scripture is your guide, but you still spend more time rather than, uh, you know, and pray in a prayerful mode mm -hmm. and uh, in a very pure and holy mode. So mm -hmm. I think we can really look to this movement. Oh, absolutely. For that too, that's another. There's a lot, of, like I said, we're spending more time on the, that discussion that I, I started with. I got to confess my honesty with this, and then we're spending more time apparently chewing on that part. But there's a lot of good stuff that comes from this. We'll talk about that here in a sec. Let me finish this part. Uh, you could lose yourself in walking creatively through the life of Christ alongside Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you experience His resurrection within what happened. Anyway. Um, you can walk through Bible passages with moments of specific reflection built into the Bible study time, which is kind of what you're talking about, where you're, you're, you're going through the Bible study, and instead of studying it, you're, you're saying, okay, let's look at this Bible passage. What what do I receive from the Lord about this? Um, what do what Where does my imagination go with this? Um, but here's where you're talking about this. The idea is that by abandoning reason and self-will, um, but still having this repeated discipline structure to what you're doing, you can grow spiritually in ways and in depths that you couldn't achieve by just study, or through what they saw as chaotic prayers from the Protestants. The Protestants are conversing with God, and they're like, that's, that's chaos, there's no structure to this. But to be able to receive from God, to be able to, uh, to spend time in prayer where you are simply allowing God to, to wash over you, um, they would say, you're receiving things um, at, a, at a deeper, richer level than you would have otherwise. Uh, so there's a, there, just like just like Judy was saying, there's a lot of positives that come from this, and you have to realize that this is a Catholic way of trying to accomplish some of the things that they saw that were good in some of the things that the Protestants were doing. They're like, the Protestants are feeling closer to God. They're, they seem to be getting stuff, whereas for the last century or so, most Catholics are just kind of showing up on Sunday, jumping through a bunch of hoops, and then going away. They're like, we need more, and the Protestants seem to be getting more. By definition, um, the Roman Catholic view of God, especially at this time, is still an inherently unreachable God. He's way out there. He's very transcendent. You don't have a personal relationship with God. So how do you how do you get closer to a God who is, by definition, unreachable? And so this is a way of saying, well, through through allowing His transcendence to wash over me in ways that I couldn't. I can't sit and converse with God, but I can let his magnificence wash over me. I can do this with structure, with uh, an, an external walking through it, um, walking through scripture, um, what have you.
but this is this is this you, you have to look at it in its context of saying this is also a way of trying to to have a relationship with God. It's just a different perception of what that relationship looks like or how to attain it, but it's it's still their version of a reformation, of trying to reform how they're doing things and get closer to the Lord. Are you gonna say something? Well, but, I mean much of Europe became filled with Protestants, um, the exception of Spain and France. Ultimately. I mean, and obviously Rome, but um, could it be that that was thanks to Teresa? Because Ooh, good point. people all over Europe were like, I don't get something, I don't get anything out of this Catholicism now. Which, which is a 20th and 21st century way of saying it, but yeah. But, they, they were dissatisfied spiritually, and good Protestantism allowed them to be close to God, and this does too, even though we look at it as Protestants and say, well, but they still have these problems with it. Um, but it at least gave them that sense of this personal relationship, and they also, you know, tried to live it out. I think that's an excellent point. I've never really thought about as to why... France and Spain in particular held on to Catholicism at a level that Germany, England, what have you, didn't. It might very well be in, in large part because the mystics gave them a more, um, everybody can have a more engaged interaction with the Lord perspective. You don't have to just be a priest or, uh, or, a, or a, a cardinal. And even the, even the everyday person can do, um, uh, can do this this kind of structured openness to the Lord and seek out mysticism. Oh, well, Teresa's book became a bestseller, if you can call it that, in the, in the 1500s. But I mean, it became a bestseller and people were reading it all over the place. That's a good point. Yes? Today, but yes, there's a there's a massive Protestant backlash. Um, especially early Calvinists could not be more against this. This is absolutely the flat out opposite way of looking at it from them. Calvin was like, it all makes total sense. If you apply your God-given intellect and you make sure you pray through it, you'll understand everything in Scripture. Um, never admitted that. Anyway, but. but but the, to the early Calvinist mindset, it's like everything makes total sense if you just apply your God-given intellect to it. This is just like nails on a chalkboard to them. But then again, the flip side is true too. To these guys saying, God is so huge, there's no way you're going to understand. He's infinite. How is your finite mind going to grasp this? You can't psychoanalyze everything. You can't say everything in Scripture makes total sense. Just by glancing at it, you'll get it. No, you, you need to make sure that you realize that God is bigger than that. So everybody walks around going, no, no, God makes total sense, totally rational. It's like that to them is, is putting God into this, this little clean box. And, and I, tend to look, I tend to look at both sides of that camp and go, respectfully, I, I, I would land more in the middle of that. I, I think you both have this wrong. But, um, but yeah, they, they would, there, was a, there was a definite Protestant backlash to to this mystical movement. Um, and I suppose, yeah, you do still see 
I was telling that today when the people with, with people who their problem with things like charismatic gifts is not ultimately that they don't see it in scripture or that they um, uh, they think it's detrimental or that it doesn't bear fruit, but rather that they go, it just creeps me out the idea of letting God work in you that way. We'll get to that actually in a little bit. 1549. Religion actually comes to the Church of England. Uh, if you remember, if you remember, the Church of England started with uh, Henry basically saying, the Pope isn't letting me do all the nasty stuff I want to do. Um, and so, 1549, we actually see a couple of crucial things that happen that, um, that help the Church of England have a sense of structure, a sense of depth, and a moral center of its own. We don't have time to get into that now, but uh, we will talk about that in a little bit. We will talk about the, the Book of Common Prayer and a guy named Martin Lutzer. But we'll have to do that next week. So, let's close in prayer and, uh, and, and give this to the Lord. Dear Lord, I thank you for... Um, as we've seen in history, so many different ways that so many different people have tried to, um, to e even if they didn't mean to, to try to, to put you in a box, to try to say that you're only for these people or only for those people, and to try to limit things and control things. And I just thank you, Lord, that, that even in the midst of that, even within some of those same groups, you've always given people who have tried to get beyond that, and have tried to go back to scripture, have tried to let you be God, have tried to let you wash over them and grow them and strengthen them and stretch them. So I pray, Lord, help us in, in all that we do, not to not to just put you into clean, easy boxes, and not just to, to do what makes sense to us one way or the other, what feels good or what, what we totally understand, but rather to, to take everything and go back to scripture and say, how do we how do we evaluate this from your word? How do we build on your word? How do we make you, your word, our prayer lives the foundation for all that we're doing? Help us, Lord, to love you well as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about those relics. Mm -hmm. When we were visiting some friends in Kempton,